Welcome to To Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast. In today's episode, Anna Shaw Hawk discusses queer scenes and community building in Ottawa from the 90s and early aughts to the present with Tasha Coldvin, Shelley Taylor, and Elena Martin. All right. Hi, everyone. This podcast is happening in the context of To Be Continued, Troubling the Queer Archives, an exhibit being held at Carleton University's Art Gallery, which sits on the unceded territories of the Algonquin people. As a project being run out of a university and art gallery, our aim with this project, both the exhibit and the podcast series, are oriented towards efforts to visibilize and challenge the histories and structures of white cis-heteronormative patriarchal settler colonialism, a history to which universities and art galleries have long been complicit. Today's podcast is all about community. It's about making family through event planning, community organizing, and rallying around each other to support local initiatives. We have with us three community organizers who've been part of the Ottawa landscape for the last few decades and who continue to do very important work on the ground. My name is Anna Shahak, and I, along with Kara Tierney, are the curators for To Be Continued. For me, not only does today's themes of making community resonate deeply as someone who cannot go back to quote unquote home, it also signals to a broader conversation about our own bodies in relation to the spaces that we're in. My family and I came to Canada as political refugees um, so that making ourselves known to the lands that we come to be on and letting that be the center of how I develop my own curatorial, academic and personal frameworks are of utmost importance. So I'm super excited to hear the stories that our guests today have to share. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask themselves to introduce themselves. Tasha, let's start with you. Will you please share with the audience a bit about who you are, how you came to be in Ottawa? Sure, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Tasha Coldivan. I'm a DJ currently in Ottawa, former MC and current co-founder of Homophono Queer Dance Party here in Ottawa. I moved here when I was 14, I suppose, I followed my mom who got a job for the federal service and have basically been there ever since, kind of. Yeah. 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 Elena, do you want to go next? Sure. Good morning, and uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here with you all. And with Shelley and Tasha, it's such an honor. I'm uh, Elena Martin, and I've been in Ottawa since uh, 1997. Uh, I came from Sudbury, Ontario, a kind of really uh, uneducated and highly homophobic and racist northern Ontario small town. Came here to play music, was brought here directly into the queer community in Ottawa from a pretty much obsolete queer community in Sudbury, Uh, started singing, became a local singer here in the queer community, and then started um, organizing and programming queer events, some big, big shows uh, in some big places. And then I created a, a women's festival. And then from that, I created a free community festival to direct focus on marginalized folks. And now I'm an author writing books. Just finished writing my first memoir, and it is a very direct look at my life and uh, that of me being a butch dyke. Yeah, that's me. Amazing. Shelley, can I turn to you with the same questions? Sure. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Elena and Tasha. So my name is Shelley Taylor, and I came to Ottawa in 1991 and have been living in Ottawa on and off since 1991. And I grew up in and around 
the Maritimes. As an army kid, I had the opportunity to live in lots of small places in and around our Atlantic provinces, as well as a few others across the country. I am currently, and have been for the last couple of decades, a sexual health educator. In 1998, I founded Venus Envy, which is a sexual health store in Halifax. And then in 2001, I opened a Venus Envy in the Bywood Market in Ottawa. And VE in both places is still up and running, going concern. I'm no longer the owner of either of them. And they've moved, All of, both of them have moved a couple of times each into bigger and better places. And along with Tasha, I'm the co-founder of Homophono Queer Dance Party. That's been active in Ottawa for the last five and a half years. Amazing. Thank you. Um, All three of you have told us that you've spent quite a bit of time in Ottawa doing a lot of community organizing. How did the three of you actually come across each other's paths? Hmm. Uh, No, go ahead, Alina, please. (laughs) I <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, you know, the question right away, I shoot to both Tasha and Shelley in my mind, you know, Tasha as an entertainer, myself as a producer, uh, you know, Tasha definitely caught my eyes as one of the hot, young, dyke DJs in the city. So totally gravitated to Tasha. And when Shelley moved into Ottawa and opened Venus Envy in 2001, I was uh, organizing the second Rock City Women's Fest, basically a festival for dykes and we partnered up and uh, you know I watched her open her first store and she watched me produce my first festival and so we go way back and those memories of having Shelly on site actually there with a little Venus Envy booth selling dildos (laughs) at my first festival it warms me greatly I would hope so (laughs) for my part I would say that Hard not to cross paths with either Shelley or Elena. I mean, those two are queer royalty in Ottawa. And so <laughs> anything that was going on that was worth its salt, they probably had a hand in. So it was hard not to run into those two. <laughs> Tasha, do you want to share? Do you have specific memories? Gosh, I think my first memory of actually talking to Shelley was probably at one of the dyke marches that ended up having the hot dogs and hamburgers at the side yard at Jack Purcell, I think it was. Yeah, and that was in, oh gosh, sometime in the aughts. And I think Elena and I crossed paths very briefly at the first or second West Fest. I was like, who's that? That's Elena Martin. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, gosh, do you remember that West Fest that was on Bank Street? Are you talking like 2000 or 2001? Around there, yeah. Yeah, so that was actually a women's stage that I produced for okay. Pride that year. But it had Tegan and Sarah yeah, on it. Did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. I, that was one of the first times I ever saw you from afar. Right on. Yeah. You've all indicated different sort of events like Dyke March and then um, the Women's Rock Festival. Can I have each of you take a moment to sort of explain those events and how they've sort of come about? Oh, Shelley, this has you written all over <laughs> it, sweetheart. <laughs> well... <laughs> So there was so much queer goodness happening in Ottawa in the early to mid-2000s. You know, some things that come to mind would be Agitate, Queer Women of Colour, Triangle Trash, um, which is a group of anti-capitalist queers. Ottawa Dyke March was founded in 2004. Venus Anniversary Fund got off the ground in 2006. And then Divergence Movie Nights with Caitlin Pascal, who was a local organizer, activist, and DJ, and still is doing many of those things. 
But at the same time, you know, they were also in queer adjacent collectives, such as Hard on Burlesque and Ladyfest. And then, of course, Chicks with Dex, which was a Tasha Kulavin production. And, you know, there was a lot of convergence happening amongst those organizers and artists at the time. And of course, you know, much has been built on these foundations, just like what was happening in the aughts was built on the community of work that came before it. Like when I first got to Ottawa in 2000, 2001, and was setting up the store, Ottawa felt super sort of organized in like queer community center and an active like queer newspaper. And there was like even lesbian bars like the Coral Reef and the Lookout. And there was parties, like a lot of stuff was happening compared to where I was coming from, of course, which was the Halifax. So in Dyke March in Ottawa was a really grassroots, community-driven, really quite inclusive event. And I remember there being like a lot of discussion amongst the committee about whether or not Venus Envy could be allowed to sponsor Dyke March because we had two stores. And so they saw us as being very like a store in Ottawa and a store in Halifax. So we were very corporate. Maybe we were a franchise. And so they weren't sure if they wanted to take our $200 or whatever because that might have like corporate stink on it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's how cool Ottawa Dyke March was. Right. Elena, you were talking about the Women's Rock Festival. How did that come about? What was happening in the Ottawa music scene that you felt strongly enough to put that sort of an event together? Yeah, well, it was on the heels of Lilith Fair's demise and myself attending a couple other women's festivals where I just didn't think they were all up to snuff of what treatment of artists and attendees could be. And so I just created what I thought was missing, which was an all-inclusive space for celebrating women in music. And at the time, in the first year uh, myself, it was closed to men. And I learned a lot. I learned that I was mimicking other women's festivals, but I wasn't really being true to myself. And after the first year, I realized there was really just this real essence missing. So year two, we opened to men and everyone. So that was real big growth for me in 2001 when I, as a person, kind of stepped out of those images and things I had been taught and kind of grew into that. So the Rock City Women's Fest first year was just like creating something where everyone could come and just be a step above and everything, like as much as I could create something like that. And year two was really about opening up that celebration of women to everyone and kind of really opening the minds of myself and everyone included. Right. Both Tasha and Shelley, you've mentioned Homophono and the era co-founders. What sort of led to the formation of Homophono? I think like it'd be hard pressed to think of someone in the Ottawa queer scene who hasn't been to a Homophono party. Can you share with us a little bit more about like what generated that? And then how did you spread the word? How did you get folks to come out? And what kind of relationship had to be sort of put into place for spaces, like actual literal spaces to house Homophono? Hmm. Originally, Shelly and I were talking about this this morning. We were saying like, how did Homophono come about? What was the impetus and so on? It kind of happened organically. There wasn't like this one moment where we're like, okay, we're going to do this. It's kind of like we saw that, you know, in Ottawa, there was a really popular and vibrant and um, successful, but pretty big queer party going on thrown by Queer Mafia. We would harken back to the old days when like Mo Diggity was around or like a certain sort, like sort of just smaller parties that um, were really community driven. We're like, you know, why don't we maybe do something like that? I mean, I had production experience and Shelly had like years of production experience. And we thought together we should be able to put something, <laughs> something on that was a bit smaller. And so, you know, we talked about it and we had 
some connections in town at the time. We thought that raw sugar would be a perfect place to put it on because it was just down the street from our house mm-hmm. <laughs> and proximity matters. <laughs> um, and so having a good relationship with the owner of raw sugar, we just said, hey, you know, can we throw a party uh, in your space? You know, and we didn't necessarily, there wasn't a lot of having to convince folks, given the fact that our resumes were such mm-hmm. that, you know, it seemed like, why not? It was a no brainer. And it kind of was like a super success from like the get go. Amazing. You've all sort of indicated coming into an auto landscape. For me, I was a young teen in the 90s. And so my interaction mm-hmm. with like, where Ottawa was like non-existent. So I didn't really come into it until I came back to Ottawa as an adult. So finding pockets to tap into in terms of queer communities was a whole different learning experience. What was it like for you when you first came into Ottawa? Where are the queers at? Like, how did that happen? How did that sort of get fleshed out? Gosh, well, since I've already been talking, I'll go. (laughs) Uh, When I first came out in 91, 92, 92, 93, around there. There was the Coral Reef, of course. But across the way in Hull, there was a bar called Le Club. And upstairs was a dyke bar called Clubhouse. And it was between the Coral Reef and Clubhouse. Those were the two dyke bars in, like, eastern Canada. (laughs) (laughs) But it was sort of like a ready-made scene, but also super insular. And so in 1994, 95 was when I started throwing raves in Ottawa. The rave scene was very queer and it was like a natural progression from the club to the underground because of house music and how queer and black house music is. And so there was a sort of like a really vibrant but ready-baked scene in Ottawa for underground house music that was super queer. And so it was like if you were in the know, then it wasn't hard to find community. I suppose you had to be in the know. We were pretty underground. Right. There was like a consistent crew of about five or 600 people who would see each other every weekend. And it was a really queer crowd. And unfortunately, I think in those years, in the 90s, in the early to mid and late 90s, the clubs shut down, but the rave scene was thriving. Right. So you just needed to know someone. I mean, I feel like that seems to be an Ottawa thing. You just need that one person to be the gatekeeper and allow you into gaining access and knowledge into queerness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, there was the rich vein of queerness in Ottawa all through the 90s and the aughts, but it really was, you just needed that one person to take you to one place. And then I found the community to be super inviting and not like clicky and insular. So it really did just take that one person and then away you go. Mm -hmm. I'm going to actually pull out the nuances of the clickiness. So over the decades, the Ottawa landscape like has shifted and there's ebbs and flows of different forms of organizing. How does it feel in the now in terms of access into queer spacing, producing events and moments that are inclusive in comparison to like how it was in the early 90s or in the 2000s? Shelly, do you want to take that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> we need direction. <laughs> Shelly, you go. <laughs> so I think, you know, Tasha kind of spoke to this, but because we had experience throwing parties, we could, you know, sort of point to that and say, you know, well, we think that this is an underserved audience and we think people will come. So getting bookings was pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Then getting the word out, everything changed with social media, right? So before. 2006 and after 2006, I think everything 
looks different in terms of how people promote, how people build community, how people let each other know what's happening. And so like, you know, in the rave scene, like Tasha has boxes of flyers from her time in the rave scene. And so they flyered the crap out of the city, right? So that was how they got the word out. And when I first started VE in Ottawa and in Halifax, we made posters and we still have some of those posters for like certain sort parties. We still have them like hidden away and, and it's very exciting to take them out sometimes and look at that. <laughs> and funny too, because you're like, we don't have the year on here. Like we don't have anything. Anymore, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, we went from flyers to posters to social media and, you know, much was gained and much was lost, I think. Mm-hmm. through social media but we can't deny I don't think that social media has made information a lot more accessible and that you know it's it's nothing now to get the word out to many people in a way that we couldn't have before and even now like with COVID like we're still throwing homophono parties but we call them stay homo yeah. parties <laughs> And in some ways, they're kind of sad because we can't see people in real life. And in other ways, it's really exciting because we get to see people who are, you know, Ottawa affiliated, but maybe don't live in Ottawa anymore. So there's people from all over the world attending these stay homo parties, sometimes a few people, sometimes a bunch of people. But we get to like lay eyes on each other and like do our, you know, silly dance moves in front of the camera and have all these DJs involved. So and one thing, when Tasha was talking about homophono, there's a piece that I wanted to add. And that was that we had this vision and it was a long time ago now, so we've kind of forgotten. But like the vision and what is carried through is that we really wanted a place where new DJs and especially right. DJs of color could basically practice to a friendly, warm audience. And we also wanted it to be a really small space which meant that, you know, we could sit at the door and say, for anyone coming to the door and saying, are you here for Homophono, the queer dance party? And people who just wanted to come in for a beer or whatever would be like, ah, no. And then they would leave so we could make space for more queer and trans people to come in. So we were very thoughtful, I think, or like cognizant of the fact that we wanted the space to be like queer and queer adjacent or queer and queer friendly only. And we wanted a space where DJs could like practice in front of people because you can practice all you want in your bedroom but like before you get a chance to practice in front of other people um, it doesn't feel real so we wanted that to be a we wanted and we really built it off the idea like kind of like mo diggity parties where you know people felt we wanted it to sort of be a living room mm-hmm. I guess we wanted to feel kind of like a living room so anyway that was my I mean, Shelly, I I think you bring up a really good point in like both what you and and Tasha envision in making accessible spaces, like creating music, DJing spaces where oftentimes racialized folks, black folks, indigenous folks don't necessarily get access to be able to take up that space very easily, whether it's in terms of like access to equipment, access to practice and learn the skill and refine the skills. So, I mean, that really draws a very important sort of thing that like, I wonder if, if like each of you can speak to this is if you didn't have the legacies of like knowledge and access to the spaces that you're in, how did generating funding and like getting these events off the ground look like? How did you navigate the institutional language that's there that often acts as a barrier for folks who are outside of that dominant sort of narrative? Mm-hmm. Well, something Tasha won't tell you as DJ Del Pilar. <laughs> she taught herself to DJ after being a vocalist for many, many years. I'm just going to speak for you, Tasha. Wow. Wow. <laughs> don't tell anybody this. Um, you can build on it. But like after being a vocalist and a producer for a really long time, Tasha taught herself to DJ because partly because we had this party, this homophobic party, and sometimes it was hard to find DJs. <laughs> and so we always had, you know, our house DJ, which was Tasha. Yeah. Um, but 
in the last five years from becoming a DJ herself, mm-hmm. um, she's mentored so many other DJs in both formal and informal ways and allowed people to come to the house and like use the equipment or like done. Tasha, what, what was the name of the organization that you took part in where you did like a full on DJ day with a bunch of folks who wanted to learn? Oh yeah. So gosh, I forget. <laughs> Lovely. I forget what it was called. Um, but it was this collective of folks who wanted specifically to teach DJ 101 to uh, women of color or f- female identified folks. And we went to, um, gosh, kitchen something or other. They got this really tiny space and we all brought our own equipment in and set up little booths where so Jazz Nasty was there and she had her turntables and uh, Seismic Michaela was there and she was doing stuff with looping and I was there with my gear. And yeah, it was great. A bunch of young people came through and it was like, pay what you had. And there was like (laughs) crackers and cheese. It was really (laughs) shoestring bootstrappy, but it was great. It was super rewarding. And from that, we saw that folks took, um, you know, the skills and just the kind of the confidence from that uh, little workshop and started their own parties. You know, the Fruit Star Candy Bar folks. And um, I think Carling DJ Avenue came through there. It's amazing to see like the fruits. Mm-hmm. That's how it is in the queer scene in general across the board is like we bring each other up. Mm-hmm. You know, we leave the ladder there so that folks can come up behind us mm-hmm. because folks aren't going to do it for us. I remember in the 90s, we, we had to hustle. I didn't realize it then at the time. Now I realized at the time that being sort of like a masculine presenting person of color actually surprisingly in this one instance worked in my favor (laughs) because I was kind of emblematic of what I was selling. You know, firstly, like these sound guys and the people I was trying to wrangle lights from and rent spaces from sort of, and I was young, I was in my like early 20s, but it's kind of like I was embodying what I was selling. I was selling the underground. I was selling sort of like edgy industry type of things. And also I got that sort of the one time where misogyny works in my favor. <laughs> like people, like these rough dudes would kind of take me seriously, right? Because, you know, uh, elbow, elbow, we're in cahoots. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, it was a struggle. It was a hustle. And a lot of the time, you know, you had to pay up front for a lot of stuff because you didn't have the reputation. And in the end, you know, after years of being in the business, then, you know, you build relationships. Mm-hmm. But at first, getting you foot through the door and getting an event off the ground was a lot of work and a lot of hustle. Yeah, it's it, like, it's incredible to think about both like the legacy that you've built on, but the legacies that you are contributing to, right? To think of young musicians. And Elena, maybe you can speak to this. Your like Westfest has featured so many young folks and like, people starting up their musical careers. And Shelly, Venus Envy has been, for me, I can't speak to the East Coast context, but in the Ottawa context has been so integral to like being exposed to young artists and creatives. How did you generate those moments to happen? Like, what did that look like? Uh, And like the labor that you put into that, into that space that like, it's still building all on itself, right? Like the framework that you started. Elena, do you want to go first? Well, sure, sure. I'll throw back to Tasha. I mean, talking about the hustle and, you know, the profound amount of work. When I started Westfest, for instance, uh, in the first year was 2004. That was 
one year on the heels of bringing Cindy Lauper to Ottawa for the first time at the Congress Center, two years on the heels of bringing in the Indigo Girls to the Congress Center. So I had started these big shows and just on the heels of the Rock City Women's Fest. And I was out of the dark kind of basement, dark attic spaces for queers. I was all about now putting queers out in the open on these big stages. And that's really what the premise to me starting Westfest was. I wanted to put a big stage on a street in the middle of a community, and I wanted to put queers and people of color and Indigenous folks on it. I had started that with the Rock City Women's Fest, and I wanted to continue it, but bring it right downtown Ottawa. And the hustle that had to happen for me to prove myself to this very, at the time, interesting community. I just happened to live there. It was between Hintonburg and Westboro Village at the time, and I was living there. And I essentially went door to door and asked for businesses. So I created this business plus the arts model, whereas I took money from the businesses to pay artists who would then perform and draw people to this street where then people would just spend their money in these businesses. Well, it ended up being kind of an overnight success. In the first year, I brought in Jane Sidbury. No one in Ottawa had seen Jane Sidbury in about 20 years. She was the first headliner, and opening for her was a slew of local queer Ottawa artists. So that was 2004, the first West Fest. It drew 5,000 people because it was free. It was in the middle of a city street in Ottawa, just west of downtown. It was completely open, and so it grew from there. But having to prove myself as an open dyke, you know, the Rock City Women's Fest wasn't necessarily, you know, um, celebrated. I mean, I don't know if uh, Shelley will remember, but there was even a talk radio show in Ottawa that was all men, like, upset that women wanted to go off somewhere and have this weekend together to celebrate women only. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of people that had a hard time with, you know, openly dyke women trying to run things and it was okay if we were out in the woods or whatever but if we came downtown it was a different deal so I just put my nicest suit on and I went door to door and I convinced people like I had just brought Cindy Lauper I just brought the Indigo Girls I'd done it both at the Congress Center I kind of like used that to say oh I've done this thing I can do this thing and the first year I literally raised about 10 grand just from those little businesses But when I shoot to where Shelley went in 2006 and talks about this great growth, so that was two years after I started Westfest, and absolutely what it just blew up. My corner on the street festival grew into a 10-block free street festival that come 2006 was seeing 50,000 people. It was free. I had three days of queer programming, and I mean, now it was national. I was bringing queers from coast to coast to coast and mixing them with mainstream artists, so now it was just becoming things people were seeing. It was the first time that the city was getting to experience all forms of Indigenous art on the street, open public, free. And it was the first big space like that where the local indigenous community got to come and take ownership and see themselves represented and feel like it was also theirs to take part in. 
So yeah, hustle, hustle, hustle. I mean, you know, when people talk about the nineties and early and two thousands, I just think work. Oh my God. That's when I worked so hard, so hard. And it was always trying to prove myself and everything good I did. Someone always tried to take away from me. I, uh, I feel like I was never, ever able to really relax and just enjoy even got to a point where that festival got so large that people really wanted to just take it from me and change the programming completely and didn't want as many people of color and didn't want as many queers. And that's when I just kind of, again, made this decision as a strong dyke to just cut ties with all the money give them back their money, take my festival away and do what I wanted with it, which was continue the programming I wanted, but with a lot less money. And those are things I learned. You know, I, I grew a festival into a million and a half dollar budget and then gave all the money back because it was really important to me to keep the queers on the stage and um, to keep my mandate and vision. So, you know, I've lost things being true to myself as a dyke promoter and producer. I've lost a lot, a lot of money, and, and it's been very trying and very traumatic at times and a lot, a lot of work. But, you know, the people and opportunities, and back to your original question, Anna, sorry for that, but uh, is the opportunities I've been able to give to the youth, the queer after me and just all the marginalized folks and you know the artists in Ottawa I think of Westfest I think a lot of them in many levels and degrees of their career think of Westfest as their starting place a place like that first big stage that gave them a chance and I still have so many great relationships with so many artists because I was able to give that to them and it was always very important to me to to create a space where those that were different because you know uh, not until very recently were the mainstream festivals in, in Ottawa actually producing like marginalized folks. So, I mean, when they were forced to by the councils and forced to by their funders and forced to by society and being kind of forced by social media and, you know, then now festival lineups are getting diverse. But hey, my lineups were diverse from the start. I mean, it wasn't token and I wasn't forced to do it. That's That's kind of what I've always produced. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shelley, you mentioned early on, like, so you founded Venus Envy, primarily focusing on like sexual health educating. How did that migrate into community work beyond sexual education? How did the creative arts play a role in Venus Envy? People don't just go to VE for sex toys. There's an amazing array of like literature and art that you offer. How did that come about? Well, in Ottawa, so hmm. <laughs> so much like what I said about homophono, you know, like I had this vision in the first place that I wanted Venus Envy to be, well, in the very, very first days of Venus Envy, it was a store for women and the people who love them. Very much how Elena has so eloquently described a couple of years in for, for me and maybe less so for, for her was like what I was trying to create was actually leaving people out and being very specific about things like gender and gender identity. And it, it became really awkward and uh, unwieldy and it wasn't actually reflecting my values. And so we became a store that was more sort of, well, as anyone here probably knows, you know, if you want to do something that's queer, you also have to have buy-in from people who aren't queer, right? So Venus MB has always tried to walk that very, very tight line between being welcoming and open to everyone who was, you know, open to being there and being a queer and trans 
friendly and comfortable and encompassing space. That wasn't always the easiest sort of uh, line. Um, and I can't tell you how many times people would come into the store, men would come into the store and look, look right at me and say, I want to talk to the owner or I want to talk to the manager. And it happened, you know, that was a constant to the point where it was just kind of funny. And I would just say, he's not here. (laughs) (laughs) He's never here. Um, Because I figured I didn't want to talk to those people who were selling advertising anyway. I was also remembering, I completely forgotten this, but when we first started, and this probably isn't answering your question, but I thought it was, it was fun to remember. I had a landlord binder. And so we, I'd moved I've opened five different or six, five different Venus MVs, I think over between the two provinces and finding a landlord who would rent to us, you know, our vision and the idea of what we do and, you know, like <laughs> it's sex, ah, it's gay, ah, you know, <laughs> you, you don't look like any women I know, ah, you know, more terrified. I was a lot less femmy back in the day and I was young. I was 29 when I started VE. So there was a lot of insecurity on their part about, you know, who was going to pay the rent. And so I started this landlord binder where I would get all the press that we had and I cut it out and laminate it with our little like in it back room laminator and three hole punch it and put it in this binder. And it was basically like, this is what people say about us and it's good. So um, you can feel confident knowing that we're like a viable business that news outlets take interest in. And this is like, we were part of a wave of sexual health sex shops or like education oriented sex shops. So we were part of a wave, you know, it wasn't just us. It started in San Francisco, of course, as everything does. And then, you know, moved its way to Halifax and Ottawa. So we had our landlord binders. Trying to convince them to trust us was a thing. And we were turned down by many, many, many spaces in and around Ottawa um, that just didn't want to take that risk or were uncomfortable or what would my mother think or what would my wife think? Like your mother and your wife want to come buy dildos, actually, is what they think. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that answered the question. No, I think like having a branding portfolio to have even the physical space itself to generate the conversations that your shop has done and continues to do is definitely something to note in the history of this space too, right? You know, you weren't coming into a space that like was like, yes, here is this building and you can take and do what you will with it. There's all of these other nuanced conversations and difficult moments that like, I think when we think about history, we sometimes look at the end product, not necessarily the process of it, right? And each of you are telling the audience the process of those difficult moments, the hustles and the joy that also drove the hustling along with the frustrations is that you have all been so important and critical in producing moments of joy for folks in the city who are often not reflected in the mainstream, whether it be in a club scenario and whether it be in like a shop scenario to be able to talk about sexual education as a racialized woman to go in to feel the sort of like environment of safety. Yeah. And then you throw in a queer racialized woman going into a space asking for like, there's, there's so many levels to the need to talk about generating safe and inclusive spaces. And again, like the hidden processes that are often like completely obscured from our local histories, right? I wanted to sort of bring it back to some nostalgia. I'm very curious about particular moments. I mean, Shelley, you mentioned the Dyke March, but what's its relationship to the Ottawa Capital Pride? Um, <laughs> oh god, Elena! Oh, no. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> oh goodness. Wow. Okay. Well, do you want me to start, and maybe you can? Yeah. 
Please, Shelly, because you mentioned Dyke March and even their hesitation in taking a small <laughs> donation That's from right. Venus Envy. So I would love to come back to that. And then, yeah, please. And then after you, Elena, if you would continue to share. So I'm speaking as someone who wasn't involved in the first few years of Dyke March planning or organizing. So Megan Butcher was the manager at uh, Venus Envy Ottawa for quite a long time. And she and some of the other staff started these queer dance parties called Certain Sort Parties. They were used, they collaborated with um, Ottawa Dyke March for a couple of years to like raise funds for Dyke March, but we weren't involved in the organizing in any way. So anything I say is basically gossip. So now that you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Dish. I think like many Dyke Marches and Trans Marches and their affiliation or association with the bigger sort of pride and gay pride parades, you know, Dyke March and Trans March is a more everywhere, I think it's probably a more grassroots, less funded, hopefully more inclusive, and just sort of a more like political event rather than, you know, just a kind of a a big party and parade where we get to, you know, show off banks and and the RCMP. So you you obviously know how I feel about pride. But I think that pride is... I appreciated that little dig. It was perfect. (laughs) I think that pride for all of its uh, blemishes and all of the things that uh, make me feel quite... I don't, I don't really align with Pride. Like, I don't feel like we've never, like, how, uh, the Venus Envy Ottawa has never taken part in Pride that I remember. Maybe we had a booth one year, I don't remember. But we've always had our own Pride programming through VE. And, uh, and I, I believe the VE now continues to do a lot of Pride programming and a lot of really interesting creative programming. So I felt like VE was much more affiliated or associated, could be associated with Dyke March than with Pride. And also, I couldn't afford to support Ottawa Pride or Capital Pride. It was always a very expensive um, endeavor and really only, you know, bigger businesses were really involved for the most part. And so Dyke March itself, there's kind of two Dyke Marches in Ottawa. There were the years where Dyke March was really political and very much, you know, police out of pride and very much about creating a space where people could feel that it wouldn't be a big, you know, cop parade, basically. Uh, and then there was a couple of years where people in the queer community, in Dyke and, and Les community, were very upset that police were being asked to not take part in Pride, and they took over Pride, or they took over Dyke March. And those years were very, very different years from the more political Dyke Marches. And so one year, I got together with Candace Price and a few other local folks, uh, and I think Elena helped us by loaning us some tents, but we put together something called The Picnic with a whole bunch of people. And it was basically in, it was the week before Dyke March and the week before Pride. And it happened on the lawn at McNabb Community Center. And it was meant to be a response and a police-free response to Dyke March that had become more sort of mainstream. So it only happened for one year because we did everything by consensus and it was really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) But it was an amazing, beautiful year. I think what year was that? Oh my god. 2012, maybe? 2013? Yeah, maybe around then. But yeah, it was a response to this, you know, really wanting a community grassroots event. And it was really well attended and the food was all donated. It was beautiful. It was actually one of the highlights of uh, being an Ottawa for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know more of the background. <laughs> so pride. I mean, you know, I'm not going to poo-poo on people. I mean, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to show you it through the lens of both as a queer performer, because that when I first moved here, I was a queer performer in the city and being able to perform on the main stage of Pride. At the time, it was at City Hall. 
in front of about 5,000 queers was the highlight of my life. Opening for the Parachute Club. I mean, listen, that was huge. And even the Pride stages, like I remember the Susan Odles and a lot of the queer performers I had on the stage on Bank Street in 2001 opening for Tegan and Sarah. I mean, those were huge. These are, these are jumping points for queer artists that are just unbelievable to explain. Now, that said, now my producer's hat and my queer hat, you know, I can't stand Pride anymore. I don't go anymore. My favorite events are the Dyke March and the Picnic and all the smaller, the Queer Family Picnic and all those small events. Those are where I and the Trans March and that picnic. And those are the events that I tend to generate to because, yeah, I mean, Pride is now, you know, not only is it funded by cis, you know, straight, white, rich corporate, but it's run by those folks too. I mean, so, I mean, let's face it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they put the face of the person running pride, you know, they make it a queer person and they put them out in front of the media. But if you pull away the layers, I mean, the Bank Street BIA, which has millions of dollars and put it on Bank Street so that the money stays there with those businesses. And, you know, like it's not trickling to the community. It's not so there you go. Me, I don't have anything to do with the corporate pride. Pride is political. It is all about and was started and the focus should be trans, uh, black women, women of color and our queer community. And it is not that anymore. So, but I can't ever help but to look at the opportunities some of our queer entertainers and performers are able to get those big stages. So. Thanks for sharing, like both of you. Like, I, for me, this is all news. <laughs> um, so this is great. Tasha, what about you? Like, in terms of the events that Elena and Shelley are talking about, how did you, uh, were you involved at any point or had participate in it? Uh, what did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, as a person who was not involved in the behind the scenes of early dyke marches and what Pride, Capital Pride has become, I think as a person who... Uh, you know, I went to my first Pride in 1993 in Ottawa, uh, and it was small, <laughs> and it was it was like two, three hundred people, um, and we all had signs, and we were all kind of loud. Uh, the first Pride in Ottawa that I went to is what Dyke March looks like now. And I think that this is the story told, you know, all over North America. I did a little Googling of uh, GLBTQ plus history of Ottawa just to try and center the timelines as to like, when when was I doing this and what did the landscape look like for queers outside of what I was doing? Like our parties and, and my production history and promotion history was mostly like from the mid and early 90s to the aughts was like underground raves, right? And they were very queer, but it wasn't mainstream. We had our own sort of challenges as queer folks in the rave scene to be seen and to see ourselves reflected in the DJ booth there's a history there. But as far as pride in Ottawa, and if you look at the legislation in Canada, the 90s were serious in the sense that we were fighting to get sexual orientation in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I mean, people were still, especially rave kids, queer rave kids, were getting bashed in the streets, you know, in suburbia, um, in downtown Ottawa. It wasn't, the 90s for queers was not a safe place to be. Well, the 90s for queers anywhere. So Pride was really about calling attention 
to the world at large that we were here, we were queer, and you had to get fucking used to it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and so over the years though, as legislation changes, as tolerance turns to acceptance, and as that acceptance turns into corporate buy-in, the landscape changes. As a person who started going to Pride's when I first came out, and then as a person who saw Pride change everywhere, mind you, not just Ottawa, but Toronto, Montreal, you sort of then try and struggle to then find your place to still see yourself reflected in the spaces that are supposed to be your own. And so inevitably, maybe inevitability isn't the right word to use, but what ends up happening is that with corporate involvement, then you have, you, you tend to have different priorities come to the fore where things end up being more kind of about your bottom line than they are about reflecting the community. And so as a person who went to these prides, I stopped, you know, going to um, Pride on Sunday and started just going to, to Dyke March and Trans March, you know, and that would be my Pride celebration, et cetera, et cetera. I loved seeing kids with rainbows painted on their faces and seeing people go by in like uh, sequin G-strings and clapping and having their parents be like, see, that's okay. I love that. And I love the fact that you can be a person from a small town that is still struggling to start your first pride and you can come to a bigger city and see and feel safe, you know, and feel celebrated. And so I cannot, it's hard to, to detract from that because even though, you know, it may have an element of having been co-opted, it still has value. But I do also feel as though while the positive value of inclusion is important, inclusion and representation are different. And so being subsumed as a queer person of color, as a queer woman of color, it's like we haven't made it. You know what I mean? We haven't made it yet. And I think that the celebration of having made it when we so clearly have not is confusing, you know? And that's why I think that grassroots events and grassroots organizing is always going to be an essential and integral part of Ottawa's queer story as a capital city where we have tons of gay folks, but still have a, a struggling queer community. You know, there's a, there's a differentiation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tasha, that was so beautifully and wonderfully said. It really like teases out and highlights both like the, I guess the conflicted relationships that we have with pride and with moments that when they are consumed and corporatized, what does that do to our own relationships with those moments when they are spaces to also for, for once or for like a moment feel safe in camaraderie with other people in the queer community and then to have that rupture that perfectly sort of helps us um, roll into like the end of the show. Like, thank you so much. That was so, so brilliant. I just want to thank all three of you for taking time to have this chat with me. We're really excited to share these stories that you've had. Gosh, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to take part and for, gosh, it's so great to hear, you know, these recollections from <laughs> queer juggernauts. And I feel honored to have been included. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. 
Oh my goodness, me too. I, Tasha could listen to you speak for days. <laughs> and Shelly, oh, such an honor, really. I, I love you both. I'm, I'm so honored to know you and be a part of this community with you and hope to do many things in the future together. And Anna and Kara, congratulations and uh, congratulations and bravo. This is a, a wonderful show. I'm really thank looking you. forward to it. Thank you. Here, here. Anna and Kara, I just I also want to say thank you for inviting yeah. me and also for the conversations that we got to have in advance. And I really appreciate this podcast series and how many voices and different voices you're bringing into it. I think that that's really needed. And, um, and I really look forward to the final product. Elena, always a pleasure. And I always learn so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everyone. Love all Enjoy you. the rest of your yeah. day. Thanks, Anna. To Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast is produced by Finn Sun, Anna Shaw-Hawk, and Cara Tierney. Music provided by bensound.com. Special thanks to today's speakers, Tasha Coldvin, Elena Martin, and Shelley Taylor. The podcast is part of Carleton University Art Gallery's virtual Stonecroft Symposium. The symposium is organized in conjunction with the exhibition to be continued, Troubling the Queer Archive, curated by Cara Tierney and Anna Shawhawk, and presented at the gallery in fall 2020. The exhibition and podcast expand conversations around local queer histories and futures. We are grateful for the support of Carleton University, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Stonecroft Foundation for the Arts. The Stonecroft Foundation promotes education in the visual arts and fosters the public's appreciation of the visual arts. Find out more about the Stonecroft Symposium by visiting quag.ca. That is C-U-A-G dot C-A.